purpose behind that. Sometimes we have to go back to the beginning and refresh our memory. And what comes out of some early teachings are these values, these priorities, one around a garden, one around a well, and another run around what I'm now calling a table. A table. So a garden, a well, and a table. And so we're going to begin, first of all, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and look at what one of our priorities is around the garden, uh, which is your work. Your work matters. Then we're going to look at, quickly, John chapter 4. Go back to the woman at the well. I spoke on this several weeks ago, but I want to bring it back into this message. And around the well, we learn that our words matter. And then the third thing, around a table. Jesus interacts community around a table. And what we learn is your company matters. So three things, your work, your words, and your company. And those are the three values or priorities that the Lord really wants to impress upon us this morning. So let's read our text out of Genesis, and we begin in the garden. So in Genesis chapter 1, we have the story of creation, and we know that God created all things, and then he created humankind, and he put them into a garden. And here's the story. The Lord said, let us make humankind, mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created humankind in his own image, in the image he created them, in their likeness. Obviously, the writer of Genesis wants to uh, uh, emphasize the fact that we were made in the likeness of God. For a reason. For a purpose. And so we continue, God blessed them, said to them, be fruitful and multiply, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over the living creatures that moves on the ground. Jumping from chapter 1 to chapter 2 of the Genesis account, chapter 1, and then it's repeated in chapter 2. And chapter 1 is kind of the, the general framework that God created in six days and on the seventh he rested. And we really don't know exactly how. It's very poetic. We don't know how that all happened. But we know it happened by God. We know that there that God was behind the creation of the world. <clears throat> We're not sure exactly whether to take this literal or whether it's figurative describing a process. We really have to leave that open for discussion. And there's very good, mindful believers that believe all different kinds of things about creation, but they all believe the same thing. There was intelligent design. There was a creator behind all of creation. No question. There's just no question. And yet, in chapter 2, he gets into the more specific things about creation. And in chapter 2, verse 15, it says, The Lord God took man and woman, because he's going to create both man and woman, put him in and her in the garden to work it and to take care of it. And the very important, primary, most important thing that we learn about the garden is it's not an idle place. Do you see that? I mean, do you get that sense from reading it? It's not an idle place. God worked to create all, that is, all that's in existence. But he also put us into that creation and gave us a job as well. So work is something that has been given by God to us. 
something of value, something very, very important. It's, the, it's where our scriptures begin. I mean, this is the starting point, that your work is important because God gave it to you. He puts you into the garden. He gave you all of the components, the elements that are needed to create something and says, go do it. And so out of that flows a valuable principle, an important priority in our lives, which is this. Your work really does matter. Because God was a worker, God created. I mean, the very first line of Genesis chapter 1, Barashi, bara Elohim, God is the one. In the beginning, God made, God worked. God created, bara, to work. It's only exclusively used for God. He's the worker. He's the worker behind all things. And then later in the Genesis 1 and 2 account, the Hebrew word changes when it refers back to us as his creator, creation that is now given the responsibility to carry on the work. So work matters. Work is valuable. Why is it valuable? That's what we have to understand. So in this primary text we learn in this creation account, we get this beautiful description, but we most certainly learn that God gave us a responsibility. Robert Bella in Habits of the Heart, I, I was, had a great summer, did a lot of reading and background, um, thinking about the future and planning out kind of where we're going to be in the fall and beyond and big church stuff and, and thinking about my own kind of life and ministry and and where I want to end up, and we're bringing in uh, Carl Martin this month to bring on, uh, help us with some church consulting and help us continue on and growing. And, and so I had a great summer just really reading and thinking and preparing, and, and these are some of the things that I've been thinking about. And several of the books I read referenced Robert uh, Bella and his book, Habits of the Heart. I read it when I was in seminary. And, and um, what he said, what's eating away at the cohesiveness of culture. Kind of when you get down to culture, get down to the garden, culture is really the garden. I mean, when you think of culture, what you're thinking about is what we do with what we've been given. We create culture. So whatever you do with what God has given you, you're creating a culture. That's that's the bare essence of life in the garden. God gave us the responsibility to work so that we would create this culture. What's eating away at the cohesiveness of the culture? Bella asks in Habits of the Heart, and he says, we are holding to an expressive individual individualism. See, we're pushing away from one another, and we're becoming radically individualized. Everything. And that is having a massive impact on what God has called us to do. The sacredness of the individual is not balanced by any sense of the whole or concern for the common good. How's this going to change? To make a real difference, the reappropriation of the idea of vocation or calling. What you do, your vocation, your calling is your work. It's your voice. That's the Latin word, voice. You have a voice. God gave you a voice. Use your voice. Use it powerfully. Because that's what God gave you to do. And in that, you create culture. That's what we're about. That's who we are. I think we often miss that. In fact, we miss that so much that uh, 
I read a book by uh, Tom uh, Nelson, Your Work Matters to God. And, and, and in it, he mentions that we were designed by God to, ex- to ex- exercise proper dominion over creation and, res- and resemble the image of God. And in that is work. That's what work is. But what he says in the book later is very interesting. He says, uh, in the church, we often spend the majority of our time teaching people how to live the minority of their time. I, I thought that was kind of thought, thought-provoking. What does he mean by that? The majority of your time and the minority of your time. What he's saying is that the minority of your time are the things that we do to build up and strengthen our spiritual lives. I mean, reading God's word and prayer and Baha Bound and mission outreach and and service and uh, joining together weekly at church. I mean, it's a small minority of your time when you look at your time. But all time is important because God values time. He values all of time. So what do we do with the majority of our time? We often separate it. We become very dualistic in our thinking and we look at the secular and the spiritual, and we, and we wonder, what is all this about? We're focusing mainly on this in a church environment, the spiritual life. And yet what comes out of the garden narrative is something really important and valuable. Your work and what you do in the majority of your time matters. It really matters. It's important. What you do in that majority of your time is so important that several writers have focused in on this. And what we learn out of this passage, there's a couple words here, radah and kabash, that come right out of this passage to subdue and rule. We've been given the opportunity to do both, radah and kabash. To, to radah means to rule. It means to actively partner with God in taking the world somewhere. That's how you're supposed to see your job. You are actively participating with God who has given you the time, the majority of your time, to make something of the world, which is culture. You are creating culture by what you do. It it, it, should, it should empower you. It should excite you. It should, it should change your thinking about what it is that you do. But most of us, I would suspect, probably have a love-hate relationship with work. I mean, seriously. 70% one, one particular survey indicated that they are dis- disengaged from work. And a lot of things are causing that. But yet what we see here is that God is a worker. That we are made in his image and we were given a job to work. And someday we will stop working? That we won't work anymore? I beg to differ. Because when I go back to scripture and I look at what the future is going to be like, I found two passages, one in Isaiah 25 and one in 65. And what they indicate after we are resurrected... We've been talking about 1 Corinthians chapter 15 about what happens when we die and are reunited with our bodies in a resurrected state. The reason why Jesus was resurrected was power over death, the sin of death, the the, the, the sting of death, sin itself, reuniting the body and the soul together together. 
to be back to where God originally intended us to be, in his garden, working body and soul together. And in Isaiah chapter 25, listen to this. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet. Where's this banquet? This banquet happens after you die. There's a banquet. I mean, did we know that? I mean, are are we getting ready for this? Do you know you're going to a banquet? You're not just going to a banquet. There's a lot of other things that are going to be happening here. For all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine choice, pieces with marrow. Where's this stuff coming from? I mean, who's preparing the banquet? There's a lot going on here. Life continues, and it is going to be awesome. And it will be a reflection of what you have done in this life. I mean, I'm jumping ahead. I'm so excited. I got to keep reading this passage. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces of marrow, refined aged wine. He will swallow up death for all time. The Lord will wipe away all faces, all tears. I'm jumping over to chapter 65 of Isaiah, and I'm continuing this thought as Isaiah continues the thought. Behold, I will create a new heaven and a new earth. Guess what? The earth gets recreated. It comes back into its original intended meaning. We're coming back. There's a heaven and there's an earth and they come together finally the way they should. God's present, we're there all of eternity in these immortal resurrected bodies in relationship with one another and God. And then he's describing the former things will not be remembered. I create Jerusalem for rejoicing, for people for gladness. He goes on, they will build houses and inhabit them. Building, we need contractors. Uh, People who inhabit these buildings. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They won't build and another inhabit. They won't plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will the days of my people be. My chosen ones will wear, it says, will wear out the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain. It continues on. See, what you do this week, 10 seconds after you die and are given a resurrected body when Christ returns and the mortal is now immortal, Christ restores all things. The earth is restored. The new heavens and the earth. Jesus establishes it all. The kingdom is handed over to God. All tears are wiped away. Death is gone. Sin is gone. All of that happens, and bam, just like that, you have it all back. You will be essentially doing a lot of what you're doing right now. See, eschatology determines our ethic. See, what happens in the future should impact what we're doing in the present. But I don't like my job. I don't like what I'm doing. I want to do something. I've had so many different jobs. I thought back. I started in junior high school. Probably many of you had a little junior high job. I weeded people's backyards in junior high. And I earned money. I think it was like a buck fifty, may have gone up to like a two dollars an hour. And and what I determined is as I got older, I want to work on the basis of give me a fee and I'll you, tell me how much you want for this whole hillside. Because I knew that I could work faster than most. 
And then I could move on to the next job and make more money. So I started thinking about that. And then when I got to high school, I started my own business and I washed people's windows. I determined the price based upon the size of the house and how many windows. And, and I drove to their house and I had my window washing equipment that this professional window washer, a friend of my dad that was in rotary with him, taught me one afternoon how to wash windows, learned from him one afternoon, and went off and started this business in high school. Then I bought a van and delivered furniture from different interior decorators, and uh, they would have a piece of furniture that needed to be delivered. And, and then in college, I learned how to sell steel for Crest Steel Corporation one summer and learned sales, and that led me into real estate. And I was in commercial real estate for many years before going into the ministry. And, and some good, some bad, and some ugly experiences. Hard work difficult. You know, it's not easy. And for a lot of us, we struggle with that and we wonder, what what are we really doing? And even in the difficulty, because remember what happens after the garden experience, the curse comes. And when the curse comes, guess what happens? Work becomes hard. You toil, you labor. Childbirth becomes difficult. All the things that we experience in life become more difficult. And we look at it like that's bad, so God must have cursed it. No, he didn't curse it. What he did is he put a clue into all that we do that it's not just about that. It's something behind what we do. We do it because we recognize behind the disillusionment, behind the difficulty, behind the hardship, behind the struggles, no job is easy. I mean, young people learn this. When they come out of college and they get their first job, it's difficult. And then they want another job. And then they want another. They're looking for that perfect job. Well, you'll never get a perfect job this side of eternity. You're going to have a perfect job in eternity. Guess what? It's going to happen. But until then, there's this sense of disillusionment that God put into what we do to remind us that it's far more about him. That our purpose comes from him. They were doing it for a reason. And in the struggle, there's something good. I was paddling the other day, not yesterday, and I went way, way out, and I was just going for it. And, uh, and all of a sudden, I started thinking about the last sermon that I want to preach. Now, I'm not going anywhere, but, and I really didn't mean the last sermon. I meant the last formal sermon, let's say one day, uh, I hope, uh, that I won't be up here doing what I do or I'm part of the church the way I'm part of the church, but that we've handed it over to a new group, a young, talented group of leaders and pastors to carry on the church. And then I do something else, maybe support them or play another kind of a role. But I get out of the way to allow the church to continue to grow. That's my desire, my goal. I, I want a succession plan. You know, most leaders don't replace themselves. It's one of the great downfalls in churches. I want to start thinking about that now. I want that to happen well in five to seven years. I'm not going to think about it in seven years. i got to start thinking and praying about it today. So I was thinking about, okay, what would be that last message? Well, it would be all the work and all the jobs and all the churches and all the places I've worked and all the difficulty and struggle. And as I'm paddling, I'm thinking, wow, it's really been hard. Who in the world is going to want to take this job? (laughs) I mean, I am totally discouraging people to take the lead here. I mean, nobody would want what I had gone through, Denise and I have gone through in the last 30 years. Believe me. But I guarantee you, every single person here probably has a story 
about pain and difficulty, hardship and toil, but yet I learned something. As I'm paddling, I realized in all those struggles, in all those difficulties, in all the disillusionment, still something surfaces. I'm, I, I left something behind, something of value, something of culture giving. See, culture is what we make of life. And I took all these experiences, we put them together in this river church. And what we're seeing come out of that is a community of people that love each other, that want to impact community. And things are happening around here as a result of what God has taken me through to get me where I am today. See, the disillusionment reminds me of something behind it. Gosh, I have so much to say. And I have so little time. And so what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to online. We're going to experiment with this, but I'd like to give you my, I've got six pages of notes. I'm on page two. So we're no, there's no way I'm going to get through it. But I'm giving you some highlights. And then maybe I'll figure out a way to get you this material if you're interested in reading the rest of the material about, about this message, about the garden, the well, and the table. But the garden teaches us a really important lesson. We're creating culture. Reality is work. And what we create of work is culture and it's good. And we can actually create a culture. We leave something behind for the next generation with what we do. Now, I've read a lot of different books on this. And one of them in particular that was really helpful was written by uh, Mislav Volf. He's Croatian, um, Yale professor, two degrees, doctor degrees from University of Tübingen in Germany, and he wrote a book on, on the theology of work and the Holy Spirit. And, and in it, he talked about really what is work. I mean, let's, let's look at it from a social injustice perspective. Let's look at it from a third world perspective. Let's not look at it from a South Bay perspective. Let's look at it from the perspective that there's most people in the world today would love to have your job. They'd love to have anything that you have. They have nothing. They survive So we have to understand work from a biblical perspective that God, with all those people, have given them something to do, whether it's a woman in her home preparing a meal and raising children. He mentions that. And what I now see is to be a partnership that raises children. And we do that together in the home. And we value that. And we value all the components of our life. And we think critically about our job and how we create culture. And we can create bad culture. We can, we can take all the natural resources and consume them for ourselves. See, we can not care about anybody else in the world. There's lots of ways we can do that. And there's lots of jobs out there that really hurt people, don't help people. And so we're trying to create a culture that's made in the image of God, that's actively partnering with God that's bringing order out of chaos. And we do that well. That's what I'm learning. We learn to do that well. Dorothy Sayers says, the best way to serve others with our work is to serve work. Do it well. I mean, really. That's what, that's what, we're, learning how to, what we're learning how to do. You build culture by doing what you do. Do it well. I mean, really go after it. And know that what you're doing is having a big impact in the life of other people. You're redeeming what you do with the majority of your time. I mean, that's what you're doing. One particular book mentioned a few illustrations 
and I put them together and asked the question, what does Ben Franklin, Bach, the composer, and Jesus have in common? It's kind of an interesting question. What do they have in common? They all did what they did well. And they spoke about this. Ben Franklin is the one who says that we are to be a jack of all trades, but a master of one. Now, it was, it's now been changed to a jack of all trades and a master of what? None. It's not what he said. He said, be a jack of all trades, be a master of one. Master something well in your life. Bach, when he would sign his compositions, he would sign with his own initials and then SDS. And SDS stood for sole Dio gloria, to the glory of God. Sign everything you do, SDS, and your initials. And then Jesus, in Mark chapter 1, after a busy day of healing and ministering to people, it says in Mark chapter 1, then in verse 39, the people were what? Amazed, espresso. You know what that word means? It means they were marveling that he had done something amazing. Do people marvel at us for doing something amazing with our lives? See, it's recapturing what you do the majority of your time for the glory of God. Oh, man, this is important. It's something we will do into eternity. N.T. Wright, others have written on this subject to try to help us understand that what we do now counts for eternity because we continue on. We carry on the work and the culture and the value of our work continues into the next life. We take it with us in many ways rather than seeing how do I get out of it, how do I make the most of it? It should be a change in mentality and do it well. Oh, so much more to say. But let me jump to the next one, which is a well, because every garden needs what? Needs water. So I put this together and I say, well, now we go to a well in John chapter 4, and it's this conversation that Jesus has, and, and he, he, there he is in Samaria, a place he shouldn't have been, and, and he meets this woman, and Jesus says, give, will you give me a drink of water? And, and she's confounded. I mean, You, being a Jewish rabbi, should not even be talking to me, a man talking to a woman. All of it's wrong. And yet, he asks for a drink of water, and he says, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. How can this even be? And then he says, what I'm really talking about is something far deeper. Wells are deep. Wells point to conversation. The second priority is that Jesus engaged people in conversation, and it's what we need to be doing. Do you see that in the text? All of it happens through a conversation. The whole thing. It's a conversation. And so Jesus goes deep. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So now he changes it up. She's still thinking real water. And, and, and he's thinking, if you knew what I could give you, See, a conversation is when we meet another person and Jesus shows up in some way in the conversation. If you knew, if you only knew what I could give you, she's like, well, you can't even draw, you have nothing to draw this water out. She's still thinking real water. He's going deeper 
Jesus has the solution. She's got the problem. And the way to the solution is a conversation. That's what's happening in this passage. Jesus says, well, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty, but I give you a water that you'll never thirst again. And then they go into this dialogue. She still doesn't understand. And finally, he says, go call your husband, and I'll explain it some more. He's going deep into her heart. It's a challenging conversation. It's not a shame-based conversation. It's a reality conversation. And when he got to that point, that's when she broke, recognized publicly she wasn't in a marriage relationship, and she hadn't been for a while, and she had had several husbands, and she really felt like a social outcast, a moral failure in her life. Water is so important. It's a way to something else. We know that. We, we spent a weekend on a vineyard. I thought, wow, this will be interesting. And it's a new VRBO that's opening up. And it was the opening day. And some friends invited us. And then we met a, a winemaker who was there and said, come to my winery the next day. And so we went to his. And he's been in the wine business since 1650. He hasn't been, but his family's been from France. And now he's in uh, Paso Roblos making wine. And, and he says, I bought this land. I bought this vineyard. And it was so cheap because there was no guarantees of water. And we dug, dug a well. 80 feet down, we found water. And now he's got this thriving winery and a vineyard. And he's making fantastic wine. And he's, he's, off, he's off to the races. And what I learned, what I realized, is that essential to life is water. And we've got to get to the essential issue in our culture, which is living water. How are we going to do that? Well, you gotta, you got to connect the dots for people. It happened around the conversation. That's why I find Paul in Romans chapter 1 as he begins this amazing cha- letter to the church of Rome. He says, I am under obligation to preach the gospel to both Greeks and Gentiles, both to male and female, free and slave. I'm under obligation. And then he says, I am eager to come to you in Rome to preach the gospel. I mean, Paul, when's the last time we felt obligated or even eager to engage someone out of our even our own culture or community to have a conversation that goes far deeper than simply water, but living water. But water's the way in. You know, we don't do well here because we just want to leave people alone. And they are where they are because that's the way they believe, because they chose to be there, right? And And if Jesus felt that way, that woman would have drawn her water, gone back to her life, and she would have continued on thirsty. She would have had a deep need in her life that had yet to be met. She was waiting for somebody to help her get through the conflict in her life to bring her to the real source of joy and happiness and fulfillment. And that's our job That's what we do. It's through conversation. I wrote down, ask good questions, use felt needs, whether it's thirst, wells or water, whether it's food, family or friends or work, what all people need, and challenge people to think even more deeply about it. So you have this garden. This garden needs water. And then what happens? What comes out of the garden? What's produced? 
out of a garden with water. Food. You have food. And in Matthew chapter 9, we read another passage of Jesus meeting this tax collector, Matthew, and he says, come out of that work. You're building bad culture. You're a Jew and you're extorting other Jews. You're taking their money and more. You're paying their, their you're, you're taking their, their money and, and giving it to Rome and then you're taking more money and often tax collectors took more than what was required and what they needed. And so it was wrong. It was abusing people. You're building bad culture. Why don't you try building a good culture? Follow me. So the guy gets up, leaves the money behind, leaves that job, and comes with Jesus. And what's the next thing he does? He goes to his home and he sets a table. And he invites other sinners and tax collectors. And Jesus shows up. We've now moved from culture making to conversation into community. We, and Jesus invites his disciples, so his disciples come with him, and now the disciples, these sinners and tax collectors, are at a table, eating food, conversing about Jesus. Another priority of the church today, besides being culture makers, your work matters, conversationalists, your words matter, But now we learn something else, communal. Your company matters. The community that you're building through food around a table. And that's what we learned in this passage. And guess what? We have something like that. They're called farm-to-table restaurants. We started going to them when we go down to Cabo San Lucas. We'd stop at San Jose and we'd go to Flora Farms and you have to have reservations. And you drive out and you're driving off this desert road and you're in the middle of nowhere and all of a sudden there's a lush garden. There's now condos built and there's wonderful food and you sit at these large tables and what do you do? You experience the fruit of a, of a garden that has been well watered And now you're with people you love and you interact with people in community. That's what the church should be doing. I want to write a book on this. I am so excited about a new theology of the church, farm to table, going all the way, all the way to the table. There's a woman that wrote a book. It's hilarious. Her name's Kendall Vanderslice. She wrote this book, We Will Feast. I love that. Her name's Vanderslice. And she wrote, we will feast. She studied gastronomy and theology. Now, how, do you, how does that happen? She's got a master in gastronomy, so she knows a lot about food. And then she went to Duke and earned a theology degree. Now she knows a lot about God. And what she came up with is this idea that a lot of Jesus' ministry happened around a table. It wasn't in some sterile church environment. It was in an environment where there was food. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Part of the early churches, they gathered, they went to the temple, they worshiped, they hear teaching. Don't get me wrong. They did come together. The church needs to assemble. But then it says they went from house to house doing what? Breaking bread. They were breaking bread together. They were eating. Matthew chapter 9. They came together at the table. 
Are you getting this? This is what we are to be doing. We went to an opening, a soft opening in a new restaurant in the South Bay. And we're, we're having our own dinner. And it starts, people start coming in. And they're seeing each other. And they're hugging. And the noise got louder and louder. And louder. I couldn't even hear. The waiters were all complaining. Like, we got to do something about this. We can't even hear to serve people. It was so loud in there. But it was like community. People all knew each other. And, 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 and there we were. And we saw people we knew. And we were connecting with people. And it's exactly what the church needs to be doing. It's the intersection of faith and culture. It's called the table. It's what I want to say. Let me give you an example of it. And I'm going to be done. Are you, are you holding on? Are you good? Okay, this is what happened this summer. So we go to Lake Arrowhead. And Sunday night, we go out with this couple that are dear friends from, from Denise's college. And we've, we've been great friends for a lot of years, and they live up there. So when we go up, we see them. And so they said, let's go to Puglia. And Puglia is an Italian restaurant in Lake Arrowhead. And, and they know um, Antonio, the owner. And uh, so we sat down, had a wonderful meal, and we were sitting outside. It was beautiful, and the stars were out, and all the gorgeous trees. It was just absolutely spectacular summer night. And there's a guy off in the distance, and the Coulter Pines and the Lodge Poles and, and the Ponderosa Pines are all around us. It's just, like, spectacular. And there's this guy with long hair and tats, and he's playing the guitar, and he's pretty good. He's playing 70s music, and, and he's a good entertainer. He's a great communicator. He's connecting with his audience, which are all people eating and drinking who really aren't there for the music. They're there for the food, but yet he's really good, and I keep looking up and looking up and looking up, and I keep noticing him. And then all of a sudden, he plays a song I'm familiar with. It's Good, Good Father. We're in the middle of a restaurant, and he's playing Good, Good Father. He's playing a worship song, and it was beautiful. And then he told a little story about a guy sitting up front that that he was once a drug addict and an alcoholic, and that man sitting right there saved my life. He was my sponsor, and he brought me to the Lord. Like, what? We're in a restaurant. You can't do that. (laughs) He broke into another worship song. It was beautiful. His name's Danny Arroyo. I'm going, who is this guy? How's he getting away with this? People aren't getting up and leaving. They're putting their forks down. They're listening. People are turning and listening. One couple wasn't. They were in love, but uh, <laughs> madly in love. And they just kept right on talking, and it was great. That was fine. They, they didn't know what was going on. A bomb would have gone off, and they wouldn't have known it. But the, all the other tables were, were all looking. And he went on for an hour playing worship in the middle of an Italian restaurant on a beautiful summer night. It was the picture of the intersection of faith and culture. It was a table that God had set for those people. It was beautiful. And, and, and people enjoyed it. And he kept telling more and more of his story. I could go on. What do we do? What do we do about this? Farm to table. Think of it. Think of it. How do we create culture and offer living water around a table for others? That's the priorities of the church. That's what I think we're called to do. It's what you do the majority of your time. That's why I've been praying all summer. 
It's why I desire to see God take us in a new direction. Maybe, maybe it works out. We've been praying about new office space somewhere closer, maybe to the Redondo Riviera, moving in a direction where our staff can be more local and communal with people in our community and with our churchgoer attenders. But also combining that with maybe a space for people to meet and interact and maybe a place where a table is set off and on at different times. Could you imagine a place like that? Maybe coffee is served or snacks. Maybe there are things in the evening that people can be invited to. But the table is set and people have the opportunity to see what's really going on in the life of the church. It's my dream. I, I, I see, it just kind of all came together here at a garden, a well, and a table. So what are we to do with this? And here we are. We're going to start communion. So uh, team, come on up, and we're going to have communion together. By the way, communion in the first century was always around a meal. It was a dinner. And then they would remember the Lord in the midst of that dinner. Well, live out a garden theology. And a garden theology is a be a culture. Go out and be a culture maker. What you do, do well. Live out a, the- a, wealth, a wealth theology, which is learn how to be a good conversationalist with people. And third, live out a, a table theology, which is be a community gatherer. Use your own home. Use other places. It's who we are in the world today. Let's pray. So, Father, we know what it is that you've called us to. We've been reminded this morning. Now we pray that we would live it. It would be part of who we are. And that what we do matters. Who we are matters, but what we do matters. And so, Father, uh, from this point, lead us in that. Lead us out. And I pray that what we create We may not change a culture, but we most certainly are creating one that resembles you. May we leave that for the next generation in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't we stand for this last song?